what I will say is what is on the other side of it is something so beautiful. Um, and now when I, and, and this may sound slightly sadistic even, but now when I'm in that pain again, I'm so grateful for it because I believe it's a gift. You know, when I'm in pain, what is happening is that I am being given an opportunity to heal even more. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. You are listening to Don't Be Afraid to Talk podcast with James. If you are listening for the first time, you are welcome. Talking and listening is key for growth, and I hope our stories will bring us together and we can draw inspiration from each other. Conversation will include topics such as mental and physical health, trauma and its effect, suicidal thoughts, recovery, and well-being. We will continue to raise awareness and offer a different perspective a mindset or an idea that could inspire you to take charge of your well-being and to grow as a human being. Thank you for joining us today. This afternoon I'm here with Mel who's going to to share with you her journey through addiction, trauma, and recovery. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Have an open mind if you're listening, and we hope you can learn something from this episode that you can take away and implement into your life. Good afternoon, Mel. How are you? Hi, James. I'm really well, thank you. How are you? Great. I'm calming down now, so I'm good. Good stuff. Good. Always good to regulate that nervous system, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm slowly getting better at it. <laughs> slowly. Good stuff. Um, good stuff. Do you mind just telling our li- listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. So uh, my name's Mel and I am a trauma and addiction survivor. Um, I've come through many years of um, childhood trauma developmental trauma, relational trauma. Um, and as a result of that, I um, I turned to substances and alcohol. Um, and I now am a certified trauma and addiction recovery coach. So all of that darkness, all of that stuff that, that I've been through, um, I've now turned around to use to help others that have experienced what I did. Super. You, you, you've taken a negative and turned it into a positive, as I say. That's the idea. Yeah, that's always great. Before sure. we get going, we're just going to play an icebreaker, short game. Okay. I will give you a word and you say the first thing that comes to your mind without thinking. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll thinking. try and keep it clean. Okay. <laughs> without thinking. <laughs> um, it's, it's five words, so... Short enough. Okay. The first word is connection. Addiction. Compassion. Love. Healing. Trauma. Intervention. Love. Fear. Was that fear? Yeah. Gripping. That's it. There we go. That's it. Simple. <laughs> Simple. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know what to say if that was me. That's good. So 
And first off, we're just going to discuss addiction. So can you just tell us a little bit about your addiction or what your addiction was? Yeah, of course. So, um, I mean, addiction is such a broad term. Um, so I will just share what addiction was like for me. Um, my experience of it was, um, I started, I mean, if, if we're talking specifically around kind of how it manifested, right? Um, so it, it started for me with alcohol, um, at, uh, a very young age, uh, probably started drinking, Around 13, 14, um, I believe I drunk alcoholically from when I first started drinking. That's not to say that I was drinking every day around the clock, but what it does mean is that I was drinking to get drunk. I was drinking to, I was drinking more than my friends. I was drinking with consequences. Um, and I was drinking to blackout even from that age. Um, uh, I experimented. So from 14. Yeah when you were 14 okay. yeah yeah and then around I think you know I, I kind of um experimented I say experimented um with other drugs such as kind of speed and cannabis and um you know sometimes I took those to extremes but they were drugs that kind of came and went in my life and then at around the age of 19 <clears throat> I um uh I I started using cocaine and cocaine really took a big hold over me. And from the age of 19 until, um, I came into recovery, uh, it was, it was a constant, pretty much a constant part of my life. Cocaine and alcohol very much went hand in hand. Um, and, um, I also, uh, used to use, um, benzodiazepines and, um, sleeping pills, which were a means to kind of bring me down, um, from from the cocaine and when you went from just the alcohol to the drugs was mm. that obviously it wasn't every day was it? it was more like a weekend thing it started out that way James absolutely I think it started out as you know a lot of people that that use alcohol and, and I just want to say that I class alcohol as a drug um, I think that the only um, the only difference is that it's legal um, and, and that you can walk into Tesco's and buy it off a shelf, whereas you can't do that with cocaine. But, you know, as a as an addict, um, I, uh, you know, alcohol was as damaging for me as any other substance that I used. Um, and yeah, certainly the, you know, the, the drinking and the using, it was a, it was, it was a party thing. It was a recreational thing. It was something that I did with my friends, but I was always the one that kind of pushed it that little bit further. Um, okay. but by the end of my using, it was a daily, it was a daily occurrence. I, I, I wouldn't be able to get through the day without alcohol and drugs. And was it a case of, obviously when you started with drugs, you started with different drugs before you you ended up with cocaine mm -hmm. is that because the drugs that you were taking obviously wasn't giving you what you're looking for so you kept looking for a stronger one um i'm not sure that it was that so much i think it was just kind of what was around at the time and what was offered to me um you know i you know i didn't question you know if somebody offered me a drug i took it um you know okay. that was my kind of, that 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 was my attitude i didn't i didn't ask what it was or what it was going to do to me i was just like yes thank you very much um and it just so happened that cocaine didn't come into my sphere into my world until that 
until that point. Yeah. And how was uh, was this? Did you keep this away from your family? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I mean, there were times, certainly in, in the early days of my drinking, when I was still living at home um, with, you know, with my parents that, you know, they were aware um, of my drinking because they were they were witness to it. I mean, there were times where my mum had to come and pick me up from um, accident and emergency because I had sort of passed out on a on a street or I'd got so drunk that, you know, my friends couldn't handle me and, and had to take me to, to hospital. Um, so they were certainly aware of my drinking, but I think that it was sort of probably seen as a, a kind of a phase maybe that I was going through. Um, that you will. Yeah. That you eventually grow out of it. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think there was um, a lot of denial um, around my drinking, not just by me, but 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 everyone around me. But I mean, certainly with the with the drugs, um, yeah, that wasn't something that I was open about with my family until much later on when when I had to be. Okay, when it was like, okay, they're gonna find out that I've been doing more than drinking. I have to come clean. Yeah. Now. And how how did your parents take that at the time when they realized? Um, yeah, the the first the first time I kind of admitted, I guess that I I, I was having a problem with with cocaine. Um, I think I was in my sort of mid twenties, and uh, my my mother had already. Well, I, I've got a brother who was also an addict, um, and so she had already had some experience um, around that. Um, so it, in some ways it made it, in some ways it made it a little bit easier to tell her in some ways it made it a little bit more difficult actually as, mm. as well. I think, you know, it was easy because I knew that she understood it. Um, it was more difficult because I prided myself on being the kind of, you know, the, the good and, and perfect child. Um, and then I came out with this kind of this big thing. Um, yeah, big so yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And I think she, you know, my, my mum was, she was, she was definitely upset. Um, you know, when, when I told my friends, I mean, my friends again, you know, I, I used a lot with my friends. Um, but they didn't know that when the party ended and they went home, I had sort of been carrying on. So the, um, you know, the admission to my friends and family that actually had become a problem when I was in my, in my mid twenties. Um, you know, everybody was quite surprised because, you know, I had managed to hold down good jobs and kind of, you know, keep my head above water. Um, I wasn't, you know, anything like the, I guess, the stereotypical addict yeah. that, that people think of. Um, but but everybody was very supportive. Uh, um, that was the, the first time I experienced recovery. And I, it didn't, I didn't stay in recovery at that point. Um, it took a little bit longer for me to sort of get to, to where I am now. But um, certainly, you know, I, I had a lot of love and a lot of support. Um, so, you mm. know, that was, that was great. And we cocaine, when you talked that for the first time, sorry, I'm not familiar. Well, I know there's a drug called cocaine, but I don't know what it's, what it's like to take. So when, when you take that for the first time for your experience, like mm. how, how was that? Was it just like, oh my God, what is this? I need more of it. Or yeah. did you like, yeah. no, I don't want to try that again, but you tried it again. No, instantly, um, from, from the minute I, I did, 
I did my first line of cocaine, I kind of knew that this was a, a feeling that I had been seeking. Um, and I knew that I wanted more of it. So it was more of a feeling that you're looking for. And absolutely, cocaine just brought that feeling. Okay, so you were addicted to the feeling, not the, not the drug, but you used the drug to get the feeling. Absolutely, yeah. And when your parents, when you came clean with your parents and the founder that you've been using, did they try to get you off straight away, like send you to programs? Or was it a case of, I can't believe you're using this, you're letting down the family? No, I, I, was, um, I was very fortunate that at that, at that first instance, um, there was never any kind of shaming around it for me. Um, and as I said, because my mum had had sort of previous experience with my brother, she um, was very supportive and she, you know, together we found a kind of a, a 12 step um, mm. meeting for me to go to and and that was my first um and she actually came with me to my first meeting and and sat and held my hand the whole way through it um so <laughs> you know there there was it it was it, it was it was lovely and it was very I, I had a lot of support and a lot of love and I was I was never really shamed I think you know there were there were times later in in my addiction where not that I was ever shamed for my using, but where it, you know, things got so bad that, you know, uh, you know, my, my mum had to, to kind of, well, basically make me homeless. Um, but at that point in my mid twenties, when it all kind of first came out, it was just a lot of love and a lot of support. Okay. And the, your group of friends that you were using with. Mm was i'm guessing everyone was in that same circle there wasn't anyone thinking we shouldn't be doing this um not all my friends not all my friends were using there were only like a few of them um that were and you know again they were even the ones that that were using were all kind of very supportive of my recovery mm. what made you stop like what event happened that you're kind of like oh this is <laughs> Maybe I should try something else. <laughs> yeah. Um, at that point, um, at that first kind of juncture, um, it was, it was probably a combination of things. I think I had started to kind of miss time off work. My, I, I had another job that was kind of being, I guess, threatened by the fact that, um, I wasn't turning up. Um, I think I had, um, there were issues around sort of my finances because of it. Um, it was just, yeah, it, it, I think it was a, a series of, of consequences that happened that had kind of been happening before and I'd managed to sort of come through them and get over them and get head above water again. Mm. Um, and I think this time round, you know, when when I, I kind of admitted for the first time that, that there was a problem, um, I think it was just... It, yeah, it was just what, what I call my first rock bottom, really. Um, yeah. And that's not to say that there weren't many more rock bottoms that, that came after that, because there were, but that was kind of the first rock bottom that I experienced. Um, and I I wanted to to do something about it. And did you did you stop and start again after your your 12, 12 week program? Is that right? Yeah, no, it's not a 12 your... week program. It's a 12-step. It was a 12-step yeah, program. Yeah, 12-step program, yeah. 
yeah no, 12 so, uh, program thing yeah it's something that you yeah. you can kind of graduate from them they're they you you go to them for as long as you need them as long as you want them you know you get a lot of people that you know once they start to go to a 12-step fellowship they're kind of in there for life um so um but i at at that point i um i stayed in a 12-step fellowship for about a year and a half um i had i had about a year and a half clean and sober um completely abstinent from all mind-altering substances um um, and then i i kind of pulled away from from the 12-step program and hadn't addressed the underlying reasons why I was using drink and drugs in the first place um and so yeah within kind of weeks of me pulling away from from the 12-step program I was drinking again drinking and using again okay so you completed you did your program and a few weeks later a month or so you went back to it and you think that's because you never dealt with why you're drinking and using yeah, I think it's important to understand here that for me, drink and drugs were a solution for me. They were a solution mm. to um, to the way I was feeling, to managing my internal condition, um, which was, you know, a very dysregulated nervous system from years of, of childhood trauma. Um, it was the inability to manage my emotions, um, the need to escape and the need to avoid and, um, and the need to feel some kind of belonging and connection, which I seemed to get through drink and drugs until I didn't anymore. Okay. Um, so for, for me and for, for many other, um, for many other addicts, what, what we need in our lives, what I needed in my life was a solution that wasn't drink and drugs. So if I wasn't drinking and using and I wasn't addressing the problem and the underlying causes of the addiction, then the only thing I knew was to go back to the drink and the drugs. And we, when you went back to drinks and drugs, was that for a few more years before you went back to back to step one again <laughs> yeah absolutely um I, I was it was sort of te- another 10 years okay um that I was yeah that I was out you know kind of back out there for and um you know and a lot happened in that time and um you know the the drinking and the and the using got progressively worse um as the the more the the longer you um the longer you sit with unresolved trauma the more unmanageable and the more dysregulated you become um and therefore the more drink and drugs are needed to regulate and to to try and soothe and to try and escape yeah and after your second round if you like i just call it second round <laughs> and mm-hmm. what you had like before you stopped again for the second time yeah and what made yeah. you just want to give it up again did something happen to well like, like after 10 years yeah long time, i think it's a, mm. <laughs> yeah i think it's important to mention here that there was a kind of second third and probably fourth or fifth time okay. as well james <laughs> it wasn't so it just wasn't a just first two. Of- okay <laughs> um 
in, within those 10 years, there were, there were many attempts to stop, uh, many failed attempts to stop. Um, and what happened was, you know, again, a, a series of, of consequences that came about as the result of, of my addiction. Um, and the, how it ended up was, was me. I, I had been in a couple of psychiatric units. I'd been in a couple of, of, uh, rehabs. I, um, had lost, I'd lost a marriage. Um, I'd lost a job. I'd lost my home. Um, and I actually ended up homeless. I ended up on the streets. Um, and I think again, it's important to mention here that those, all of those things were consequences of my using. None of them was a defining moment for me to stop. Um, the, the, the decision to stop came from uh, something that happened internally for me. Um, and it's not something that I believe I can articulate that well, apart from to say that I had spent many years before that not really caring if I lived or died and most of the time hoping for the latter. Mm. But I had a moment where I knew that I wanted to live and not only did I know I wanted to live, but I knew that I had a purpose that was great. Than the purpose, than how I was living my life at that time, um, and I knew that to fulfil that purpose, I needed to get clean. Um, and that's not to say that I made that decision and I had that moment of clarity, and then everything kind of fell yeah. into place and was wonderful. Straight away, it took a lot of hard work. Yeah, yeah. And did you try different avenues mm. for for healing, or do you just go back to okay, this is what I've done before, so I tried that again, or did you look for alternative? I think over the years, I looked for many alternatives. I, you know, I went to doctors, I went to psychiatrists, I was, you know, put on, um, you know, medication, antidepressants, I tried, you know, I tried therapy, um, but wasn't at the point of being willing to look at my trauma enough. Um, I... I tried the spiritual route. I um, went and started meditating at a Buddhist center. I trained to be a yoga teacher. Mm. Um, there were many things that I that I tried um, to yeah to to stop drinking and using, um, but it it had to be something that that happened for me internally and also the right path for me to take in that healing. Um, and to be able to find that right path. What worked for you? Because you tried so many things, um, which is mm-hmm. great, which is great. Instead of just trying one or two and be like, oh, this is not for me. But you've tried a lot of things. So which one, which path kind of was clearer for you? Yeah, for me, it was the combination of going back to a 12-step fellowship um, and also getting some, um, doing some real work on the trauma. Um, and they, for me, they needed to go hand in hand, um, because I tried one without the other on various occasions and that hadn't worked. So for me, I needed the, the, the 12 step program to, 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 I guess, deal with the actual kind of addiction side of it and to underpin Mm. my trauma healing. Um, and once I had managed to get a little bit of of clean time it was very important for me to then start dealing with the underlying issues through trauma therapy and you know I think 12-step fellowships are amazing and I'm still you know a a part of them but 
when you have trauma, um, when you're storing trauma, um, and especially with a with a traumatic childhood, when it's developmental trauma, uh, a twelve step program can be a little bit like trying to stick a plaster on an open wound. So, you know, it will kind mm. of, it will stop, you know, it will stop the bleeding maybe for a certain amount of time. But as soon as that plaster, you know, falls off, the, the wound is going to be open again. Um, so that, that we need something, I needed something that was going to close that wound and make it a scar. Yeah. And when you're going through your trying out different things, the word trauma obviously was never probably mentioned to you. Mm. Was it, or was it mentioned? Um. I mean, I knew that I'd been through something very traumatic as a child. I knew that I'd had a very traumatic childhood. There was kind of no escaping from that. Um, and I had been in therapy in my sort of in my teenage years. Um, but the the relationship between the trauma and the addiction wasn't really pointed out to me until much, much later. And actually, um, what I was, the message that I was given um, when I went into a 12-step fellowship in my, in my mid-twenties was that actually my trauma and my addiction weren't connected and that whether I had experienced the trauma that I had as a child or not, I still would have been an addict. And that was the message that I was left with. Um, So when I, yeah, so when I started to see therapists and they would say to me, you know, the reason that you're that you're using and you're drinking is because of what's happened to you. I would look at them like they were mad and say, "Well, no, you obviously don't understand addiction." Um, so yeah, I think that a lot of that was my denial um, and my need to to avoid. Okay, so even when they said that when someone mentioned to you that the two could be linked, you still like didn't want to believe that. Yeah, that's possible. And when we're talking about trauma, are we talking? Emotional trauma, because they, they tend to do the most damage, mm. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my mine was sexual abuse. Um, so I was sexually abused by my father and my brother from before I can even remember. I think my earliest memories were when I was about two or three. Um, and I disclosed um, about the abuse just before my 13th birthday. So it was a, yeah, it was kind of my, my whole childhood was... Um, was I was being sexually abused um and obviously with with the with the physicality of the sexual abuse obviously goes a lot mm. of kind of emotional stuff as well um but you know I I have to say and this isn't me kind of minimizing or or justifying um what I didn't have um and as a professional I, I agree with you completely with the emotional stuff because as a professional what I see now is actually the developmental trauma that has huge impacts on people is around the neglect and a lot of the emotional abuse um and thankfully um you know that wasn't my story you know I had you know a very loving mother um and grandparents and aunts and uncles so I had a lot of very secure attachment um, as a child from those members of the family but obviously it was very it was all being underpinned by by the sexual abuse that was taking place and when I disclosed about the abuse um, that was when a lot of the kind of 
the more emotional um, and the neglect kicked in at at that stage. It was a a little bit later in my kind of trauma journey that that I experienced the the neglect and and more of the emotional stuff. And when you discussed that with your members of the family who supported you, did did they believe you or was it just a case of Mm. the child's imagination? No, no, no. I was very much believed. Um... And uh, when I disclosed, it was to a nurse at school. Um, and obviously, the, the school were under obligation to contact the authorities. Um, and I was, you know, taken in for, for police interviewing. And, and the um, and both my father and my brother were, were taken to court um, and, and both of them pleaded guilty. So it was, uh, yeah, so I, I was very much believed. Yeah, that, that's good. That's good. Do you think that from that, did you ever blame yourself for what happened in your adult life? I don't think, <laughs> I get asked this question a lot, actually. And I don't remember, I don't remember ever really thinking that the abuse was my fault. Um, I think I, you know, I was always, um, I was always told sort of growing up that I had a very sort of you know old head on young shoulders and there was part of me that I think was was kind of wise enough to understand that I hadn't encouraged or invited that um what I did blame myself for a lot was the events that happened after my disclosure um because that was really when you know the family kind of fell apart you know my father and my brother were both were both taken away from from the family um the family became very disconnected um you know my dad and my brother were both sent to prison um and you know the 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 knock-on effects from the disclosure um was where I carried a lot of the blame um around um but that's not to say that I didn't carry a lot of shame around the sexual abuse um so although I didn't Hmm. blame myself for it I was still carrying a lot of shame from it the events that happened do they still trigger you now or (laughs) um I I think you know what like because the the memories are still in the body like you yeah I I think I with with trauma it could be they might reappear somewhere else yeah, abs- oh, they do, James. Absolutely. You know, I was, um, you know, I, I do have complex post traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD. And, you know, part of um, having uh, complex PTSD um, is actually more about emotional flashbacks. Um, so I don't necessarily have the, um, the image flashba- flashbacks or the image memories, but yes, the body remembers the trauma. And, you know, I'm blessed to have done huge amounts of work now on around my trauma. <clears throat> and I believe that I am, I'm very healed from it. I'm able to, to talk about it. I'm able to own it. I'm definitely free from the shame, um, which for me, the shame is the most toxic part of being sexually abused. Um, and I, I believe that I'm free from the shame of that, but I mean, what happened to me certainly can still affect me in, in certain areas of my life, particularly, you know, in relationships, um, and, you know, around anything that is relational. So I'm not just talking about romantic relationships. I'm talking about, you know, anything that is relational, um, because essentially sexual abuse 
in the family, especially as relational trauma. Um, so as much as I would love to be able to sit here and say, oh, no, I never get triggered. Um, I do. I absolutely do. But but the thing the thing now is that when I get triggered is that I don't have to use a substance. I don't have to turn to alcohol. I don't have okay. to turn to any of those maladaptive, what I call maladaptive coping mechanisms, because I have a whole great big toolbox of all of these great adaptive healing, wonderful tools that I can kind of pull out of my toolbox. Mm. And and that's not to say that it's easy um, because there are times where I don't want to go into that toolbox. I want to sit in, you know, I want to sit in the pain and feel the pain. And, and a lot of the time I, I need to do that as well. I need to sit and feel the pain. Um, but I do have so many resources now um, that that help me to regulate my, re-regulate my nervous system, which is the first thing that needs to be done. And then to process what has happened to process that that trauma reaction that I've had um, and to, as I say, shed another layer. Yeah. And when you when you mentioned sitting with sitting with the pain, mm. do you think a lot of people do that? Uh, do you think a lot of people like to sit with the pain instead of looking for ways to get rid of the pain? Like you, you, you could become familiar with the pain that you don't want to get out the pain because. Mm, yeah, I, I see it, this. It's normal. It's normal for you, but it's not normal. Yeah, and I think that that there are there are so many different avenues to to that we could go down with this, and I think you know this is obviously a lot of the a big reason why people use addictive processes, substances, behaviors, um, because the pain is too much, and those things temporarily and momentarily take away the pain numb the pain or are a way to avoid the pain um and one of the really important things that i've learned in my healing journey is that you can't go under it you can't go over it and you can't go around it you have to go through the pain um and yes i do think that there are there there is there are people that re-traumatize themselves that like to okay. to 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 sit in that pain um because the the payoff for that is that they they're, they're comfortable with the uncomfortable um and the there is a fear of what is on the other side of that because it's the unknown um so i i think that that there is that but it's for me um i understand that i i can see why for some people, it is attractive to stay in the pain. Mm. And um, just in relating to shame, when you said you carried a lot of shame with your your trauma, so mm. was that for many, many years? Like you're obviously for shame to to stay there, you have to mm. be quiet about it. So was that something that you just, I'm not going to talk about this and just let me deal with it myself? Yeah, I think, I think it's, you know... It's very difficult to identify shame until you are taught about it, until you're shown it. I didn't really know that that was what I was carrying. And I think, you know, the the way that the easiest way that I help my clients to identify shame is shame is a belief about who you are. Um, and it's a belief okay. that you are given 
through experiences from other people about who you are. So, you know, there is there, you know, people talk about guilt and shame and, and the difference between them. And, you know, guilt would be, um, you know, I have done something that was wrong. I have done something that I shouldn't have done. Shame is I am a bad person. I am a wrong person. So shame consumes you and and gives you a belief about who you are rather than what you've done. Mm. And so the only way to get out of that is to to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. That has to be difficult. Of course it is. You know, sharing sharing stories um and i think stories is sometimes can be a, a bit of a a wrong word to use because story sounds like it's something made up but sharing experiences yeah sharing Experience. experiences um yeah. with other people is the most difficult thing to do you know asking for help was the most difficult thing that i had to do because i didn't believe that i deserved it why do you think you didn't deserve? Because I was so, because I think, you know, I was, I, that, the, the messages that I was given as, as a result of being sexually abused, as the result of what happened after I disclosed, um, about the abuse, um, and then the behavior that went along with my addiction as well, um, all of those things, you know, led me to believe that I wasn't good enough, I was unlovable, I wasn't worth it, that I had, you know, bought all of this on myself, um, you know, all of all of that stuff. Um, and I, I just didn't think anybody else would understand. I didn't mm. think, you know, I thought, if I ask for help, no one's gonna, no one's gonna be able to help me, no one's gonna yeah. understand this. Um, but you know, asking for help was the single most important thing. You know, I, I, I would be dead if I hadn't have asked for help. I've truly believed that I wouldn't be here now. Yeah. And when we're talking about disclosing shame to talking to someone about it, obviously speak to the right person. Mm. Now people like to post stuff on social media and for reasons I don't know, but when you're talking about shame, it's obviously important to discuss it with the right person. That's absolutely that you think can absolutely. especially when you're talking about yeah if things that personal don't just throw it out to someone that yeah. you don't really it's finding the right person yeah. to share the information with absolutely i mean i think you know trauma and addiction both carry so much shame and and disclosing your experiences to people who are trauma informed who are addiction informed who have been where you've been who understand you who can support you um who are not going to shame you anymore is so important um and don't get me wrong that you know social media is can be amazing for that um, you know, I have found a lot of support and community and encouragement in the right places in social media. Yeah. But yeah, I, w I would say, you know, if you are kind of at the beginning of your journey and not sure who to share with, make sure that it's it's with 
people that are informed about your experiences um you know and and it could be a, it could be a peer to peer it doesn't have to be a therapist you know there are lots of mutual support mutual age support groups um but yeah make sure it's a safe space that that would yeah. be the the best advice i could give really yeah cuz that could be difficult if you share with it say the wrong person and yeah they don't respond to they don't respond how you expected them to respond so you just knock you back mm-hmm. into that belief yeah there's definitely a danger of that for sure so when we're talking about you feeling that you, you didn't deserve help mm. the process of uh, self-love mm. is that something that you practice every day or how do you end up how do you come about that you know self love is is a real journey to get to um uh, i remember um i remember sitting in in rehab 5 years ago now and um you know being being given this idea um that one day i might be able to love myself and and i just thought you know that that's never going to happen that that's absolutely impossible and you know, I think my my journey to to self love has been first of all to to rid myself of that toxic shame, um, to get the right therapy, to learn and understand and be educated in why I felt the way that I did about myself, um, to be educated around you know, where my, where the beliefs, these limiting beliefs about myself had come from. Um, and I think the first part of self-love for me was acceptance. Acceptance um, of where I had come from, what had happened to me, acceptance yeah. of the fact that, you know, I, I had no choice at the time. You know, for me, it was... Um, Drink and drugs were the only things that I knew to to regulate myself, and understanding that yes, I was accountable and responsible now for my recovery, um, but but just getting some acceptance around all of that stuff um, through some really good therapy um, really really helped me with that. And once I started to get some self acceptance. Um, it was a continuation of self-care. And, you know, when I talk about self-care, um, I, I, especially when I talk to my clients about it, you know, self-care isn't, you know, bubble baths and getting your nails done and, and drinking. <laughs> that, that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, all of that stuff is wonderful and we should all absolutely do it. You know, it, it's great and it makes us feel good. But self-care is actually really hard work. Self-care is going through the pain. Self-care is looking after our emotional, mental, physical, spiritual well-being um, and doing... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, self-love and self-care, it's two separate things. Very different. Very different for me. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I I think that we have to um, practice self-care to have self-love. All right, gotcha. Um and self self-care is a is is something as i say that that need, that is a practice and the way that i self-care is that i you know i meditate daily i exercise regularly 
I look after my nutrition. I um, have a supportive network around me. I talk about how I feel. Um, I journal. I, you know, I do a lot of practices. Um, I no longer try and numb and hide from the pain. Yes. Um, I find a way through it. And it's hard and it's heartbreaking and it's painful. Um, but it is the only way to self-care. It's the only way to look after myself that and and when I do those things, when I do the the things that are good for me, I build my self-esteem because I see that I'm doing things that mean I value myself. I see that I'm doing things that mean I care about myself and I have respect for myself. And from that comes the self-love. Okay. And acceptance. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Acceptance, that could be, yeah, that, that could be difficult in a sense that when you've been traumatized to accept what happened, to let it go. Yeah. I And I think that um, for me, it was... I mean, I, I have a lot of acceptance now around around what happened to me, around the abuse, um, around the justice system, around you know the the lots of kind of things that happened um, in my childhood. But I think that there is a difference between accepting what has happened to you and self acceptance. Um, and I think that they're, they're, they're two very separate things. And I don't necessarily think that they need to happen together. Okay, so you can have self-acceptance before you have, before accepting what happened to you. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And um, what do you think you would be now if you didn't go through uh, your recovery journey? If you carried on the same... Mm road like now what do you think you'd be I wouldn't be here James is the truth of it I mean my my drinking and using had had got to the point where you know I was on the streets um so I would either still be there um or or I would probably be dead okay and with with the with the work that you had to do from when you decided to kind of help yourself and heal yourself all that work, all that work is like obviously it's important work, but it's hard work. So do you understand why people might not want to do it and just you think like okay, that's too hard. I'm, I'd rather just have a drink. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, I understand that. Um, I understand that more than more than most people. Um, but the truth is that the pain, the the drink and the drug stopped working, and I was. I was I was in the pain. I was in it. Um and they, you know, they may have kind of worked for short bursts of time on occasion. Um but what was happening to me as the res- as a result of my addiction was causing more pain. So it was it was I was caught in a in a cycle by the end of it. Um and and whilst I do understand, of course I do the the resistance to looking at, to going through the pain. Um, what I will say is what is on the other side of it is something so beautiful. Um, and now when I, and, and this may sound slightly sadistic even, but now when I'm in that pain again, I'm so grateful for it because I believe it's a gift. 
you know, when I'm in pain, what is happening is that I am being given an opportunity to heal even more. I'm being given an opportunity to Mm. shine a light on something else that is being stored within me that is keeping me stuck, that is stopping me moving forward, that is that is damaging my belief system, um, that that is potentially causing me harm, um, that pain alerts me to whatever that might be and shows me it's like a light that is shining, you know, and and I I either choose to switch that light off and go back down into it, or I choose to continue to to hold that light there. And now with all the resources I have, and I get to the other side of the pain, and and there's a a gift, there is always a gift on the other side of it. You know, there is always another level of freedom, another level of healing that happens. Um, So although going through the journey of healing to start with is is the most difficult thing that, that you will have to do, it is as equally... Yeah. As, as much as it is painful and heartbreaking, it can be equally as beautiful and, and freeing. Yeah. Is that a, is that a mindset shift? If you, cause obviously every pain come, comes like the, the negative comes with a plus, but it's easier to focus on the negative because when you're in that pain, it's easier to, it's easier to stay there than it is to think like, Oh, this might mean something. So for, for mm. you now, you, you, you've done a lot of work on yourself. So you know that when the pain comes, is an opportunity for growth again so for anyone that's kind of like mm. if someone's coming to you that's sorry if someone's coming to see you and they're like i'm stuck in this place and i'm trying to get out and i just can't get out and i'm guessing you obviously explain to them what's on the other side if they decide to do the work on themselves yeah and and the reassurance that i i will be there to hold them through it and i think that that is that is the most important thing is that we cannot do it on our own you know that that is why asking for help is so important because you know there are so many reasons why but but to find recovery alone i believe is impossible because recovery needs connection um you know okay. because essentially when we um when we are traumatized we are disconnected from our authentic selves. We are disconnected from ourselves. We're disconnected from others. We're disconnected from the universe. We're disconnected from anything spiritual. So recovery is about connection. And that is why, yeah, it, asking for help is, is the single, is, is the first step and the single most important thing to do on your healing journey. And do you think, sorry, for yourself, did you have someone outside your family that always believed in you? I had a people. So always kind of rely on the family to to be the support which is good yeah. sometimes it's good to have the support uh, externally so did you have that yeah but I certainly had that in my in the 12-step group that I that I went to um I had that in um you know excellent therapists that I saw um and I had that with 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 some friends as well definitely there, there was, there were a few friends that really kind of stuck by me um, through everything. So I'm, you know, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful for that. Yeah, yeah, that's important. And uh, overall, as a society, why do you think we still, we still shame people that are, are addicted? 
Well, it's, I think it's the stigma. I think it's the stigma that is attached and we are still asking why the addiction rather than why the pain. And the question needs to be why the pain. Mm. The question needs to be why are these people using drink and drugs and how can we help them? We don't live in a society that is compassionate enough, that understands that enough, that is trauma-informed enough. And, you know, the stigma that is attached to alcoholics and to addicts um, is, you know, the the stigma of, you know, they're, they're liars, they're going to rob you, they're going to commit crime. Um, and, you know, whilst all those things are true, um, not of all um, people that are addicted or, or alcoholics, but whilst whilst those things are true, you know, what needs to be understood is the behavior is the result of the pain. The behavior is the result of the suffering. And we are still punishing people for their pain rather than helping them. Yeah. And do you think language has a lot to play with it as well when you're talking about stigma? Like some of the language we even use towards people that, mm-hmm. people that are addicted, they're not very, they're not looked at as human beings who's having difficulty. They're just looked at as... yeah some of the bad language that we can use is used towards as people. So that kind of keeps the stigma alive as well. Absolutely. And, you know, there there are people that will absolutely um, berate me for using the word addict even. Um, I use it because it's a word that I'm personally comfortable with, but I know that there are, you know, there is now a, a lot of kind of talk in, in the sort of therapeutic world that we that we shouldn't be using that word, um, that we should be, you know, talking around the addiction um, and around the person that is suffering rather than actually, you know, stigmatizing somebody as an addict. Um, I refer to myself as an addict because I'm comfortable doing that. Um, I don't have a, an issue with with having that as 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 being known as somebody because I'm in recovery now and 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 I I I am okay with that. But I do think that yes, I think a, a change in language, but you know, there there needs to be a change in ideas. There needs to be a change in yeah in 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 education um and I, I believe that that should start in schools you know that should start in yeah I, I don't think it's something that can be changed from top down i think it needs to change from from uh, mm-hmm. bottom up as a society or community absolutely i agree completely and then um, what other things are you teaching people to overcome um i mean my my speciality is developmental trauma um and addiction and i um you know i meet my clients where they're at so all of my clients have different um different needs um and and different things that they need to work through but i think that the the overriding thing that i want to achieve with my clients is uh that they to heal them home to their authentic selves. You know, I mentioned before that, you know, we are disconnected from our authentic selves through trauma and through addiction. Um, And I believe that all of us have everything that we need inside of us to recover, um, to find a life of vision, of purpose, of joy. Um, And my, what I try and do is is educate um, and, yeah. And then help 
people to find what they already have within them Their own. Um, to be able to to thrive in life. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, everything that we have is already there. It's mm-hmm. covered up with lots of layers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we've yeah. been distracted. Yeah. yeah, so essentially, for most of us anyway, connection is what we, one of the big things that we are looking for. Mm. Regardless if you're a child or an adult, it's something that we're all looking for and we need. Mm-hmm. And if you have loads of layers on top of that, if you if you're using a lot of things to cover that up, it's just bringing more pain to yourself. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's it's more than it being covered up. I think actually, um, we we're disconnected. We become disconnected. Um, so we we need to find a way. Um, to become connected again, and and yes, a lot of that is clearing those is clearing those layers. Um, but you know, imagine you know as a child, you're feeling sad, um, and you're being told by by your parent, you know, you shouldn't be feeling sad. Don't cry. Yes. yes. <laughs> what are you crying for? There's nothing to be upset about. Then you're going to start. You, the message that you're getting is, I don't trust myself. Like my parent is telling me that I shouldn't be feeling this way. So therefore, as a child, you stop trusting that instinctive need to be sad or that instinctive need to be angry or that instinctive need to eat or to drink or whatever it is. So because you develop this distrust, you you disconnect from what you authentically feel and you authentically are. So it's about finding a way back to that connection with yourself, to learn to trust yourself again. That's beautiful. Yeah, a lot of work. <laughs> worthy, worthy yeah. to, to. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's a beautiful journey. And uh, what does well-being mean to you? Well-being. What does well-being mean to me? Well-being is um, living a life where I feel I am most of the time balanced in my mental emotional spiritual and physical state and what's the reason why you do what you do now to give people hope to give people the opportunity to experience the beauty of healing that i've experienced and my last question is what's one thing you're proud of my recovery simple (laughs) absolutely it's the hardest thing I did, but it was the kindest and best thing that I did for myself. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's fine. If you enjoyed today's episode, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a quick review on my Facebook page, Don't Be Afraid to Talk, or DM me on Instagram. The show notes will include all of the relevant links from today's episode. If you haven't already, please download, leave a rating and share with your friends. You might just reach that person who needs to hear this message. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. I am James Lumumba, signing off with gratitude.